This is episode 171 of the Dear Discreet Guide Trouble at Work podcast. This episode is titled Station 11 by Emily St. John Mandel. This is part of our Sunday literary series during the pandemic. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Dear Discreet Guide Trouble at Work, where we talk about work, working, and how to make work better. If it's work-related, we're on it. Who knew talking about work would be this much fun? I'm Jennifer Crittenden, a former CFO and host of the show. And thank you for joining our quest to improve our workplaces. Let's do this. Have I got a treat for you today. Today's book is Station Eleven by Emily St. John Mandel, published in 2014. Mandel is Canadian, and this book is her fourth novel. I'd never heard of her or the book, and I have to say of all the books that we've talked about on the Sunday series, which I think this is our number 16th, I would recommend this one because it's so contemporary-feeling. It's not the greatest piece of literature on earth, but I found it really enjoyable, and I recommend that you read it now while the pandemic is still on, so to speak. I think it might make you feel better. It did me. Okay, some facts. Mandel was born in 1979, so she's fairly young. She was born and raised on Denman Island off the west coast of British Columbia. She lived in Toronto and moved to New York City, and all of those locations figure prominently in the book. She's apparently written more crime novels, and Station Eleven was her first sci-fi novel, although she's another one who objects to that label, maybe because of the talking squids in space problem that Margaret Atwood talked about. I actually loved that aspect of it because there's no magic, no superpowers, no breaking of the laws of physics, all that stuff that kind of bothers me about so-called science fiction. Station Eleven is her most famous book by far, and it won a bunch of awards. The 2015 Arthur C. Clarke Award, it was shortlisted for the National Book Award and was finalist for the Penn Faulkner Award for Fiction, which is kind of weird because it was dystopian, uh, which I suspect is not typical for that award. Let's do a bit of the plot here. Here's a nice synopsis from Singrid Nunez's review of the book in the New York Times in 2014. Emily St. John Mandel's fourth novel, Station Eleven, begins with a spectacular end. One night in a Toronto theater on stage performing the role of King Lear, 51-year-old Arthur Leander has a fatal heart attack. There's barely time for people to absorb the shock when tragedy on a considerably vaster scale arrives in the form of a flu pandemic so lethal that within weeks, most of the world's population has been killed. Among the people on the scene that night of Arthur's death is Kirsten Raymond, an eight-year-old actress playing a tiny non-speaking role as one of Lear's daughters as a child. When we meet 
Kirsten, again, 20 years have passed and there is no more Toronto. There is no Canada, no United States. All countries and borders have vanished. There remain only scattered small towns. Kirsten now is part of something called the Traveling Symphony, 20 or so musicians and actors in horse-drawn wagons who roam from town to town in an area around the shores of Lakes Huron and Michigan. At each stop, the symphony entertains the public with concerts and theatrical performances, mostly Shakespeare, because as the troupe has learned, this is what audiences prefer. People want what is best about the world, explains one musician. The symphony has a motto taken from an episode of Star Trek Voyager, survival is insufficient. And it is this unpoetical line, rather than as one might expect a quotation from Shakespeare, that Kirsten calls my favorite line of text in the world. Now, the world is dystopian, but it's not completely wrecked. In fact, it's the remnants of the old world that I found really moving. And one person who wrote a blurb for the book wrote, Disturbing, inventive, and exciting, Station Eleven left me wistful for a world where I still live. And that was Jesse Burton, author of The Miniaturist. I really related to that. Here are some of the descriptions of the towns that I think you might like. A late afternoon torpor had fallen over the town, the light thickening and shadows extending over the road. The road was disintegrating here as everywhere, deep fissures and potholes holding gardens of weeds. There were wildflowers alongside the vegetable patches at the edge of the pavement, Queen Anne's lace whispering against Kirsten's outstretched hand. She passed by the motor lodge where the oldest families in town lived, laundry flapping in the breeze, doors open on motel rooms, a little boy playing with a toy car between the tomato plants in the vegetable garden. The pleasure of being alone for once, away from the clamor of the symphony. It was possible to look up at the McDonald sign and fleetingly imagine, by keeping her gaze directed upward, so that there was only the sign and the sky, that this was still the former world and she could stop in for a burger. The last time she'd been here, the IHOP had housed three or four families. She was surprised to see that it had been boarded up, A plank hammered across the door with an inscrutable symbol spray-painted in silver, something like a lowercase t with an extra line toward the bottom. Two years ago, she had been followed around town by a flock of children, but now she saw only two, the boy with the toy car and a girl of 11 or so who watched her from a doorway. A man with a gun and reflective sunglasses was standing guard at the gas station whose windows were boarded up by curtains that had once been flowered sheets. A young and very pregnant woman sunbathed on a lounge chair by the gas pumps, her eyes closed. The presence of an armed guard in the middle of town suggested that the place was unsafe. Had they recently been raided? but surely not as unsafe as all that if the pregnant woman was sunbathing in the open. It didn't quite make sense. The McDonald's had housed two families, but where had they gone? Now a board had been nailed across the door, spray-painted with that same odd symbol. 
The Wendy's was a low, square building with the look of having been slapped together from a kit in an architecturally careless era, but it had a beautiful front door. It was a replacement, solid wood, and someone had taken the trouble to carve a row of flowers alongside the carved handle. Kirsten ran her fingertips over the wooden petals before she knocked. The idea of place in the book is hugely significant as everyone travels on foot or as the symphony does by horses pulling caravans with the small children inside while everybody else walks. They travel a small area in the Great Lakes region. Remember how I said Mandel comes from Denman Island. Her incredulity about people's ignorance of place is apparent in a number of places, but this one I especially enjoyed. Arthur lives in a permanent state of disorientation, like a low-grade fever, the question hanging over everything being, how did I get from there to here? And there are moments at parties in Toronto, in Los Angeles, in New York, when he'll be telling people about Delano Island, and he'll notice a certain look in their faces, interested but a little incredulous, like he's describing an upbringing on the surface of Mars. For obvious reasons, very few people have heard of Delano Island. When he tells people in Toronto that he's from British Columbia, they'll invariably say something about how they like Vancouver, as though that glass city four hours and two ferries to the southeast of his childhood home has anything to do with the island where he grew up. On two separate occasions, he's told people in Los Angeles that he's from Canada, and they've asked about igloos. An allegedly well-educated New Yorker once listened carefully to his explanation of where he's from, southwestern British Columbia, an island between Vancouver Island and the mainland, and then asked, apparently in all seriousness, if this means he grew up near Maine. I thought there was also some really touching parts to the book that rang true for me. At one point, they visit an abandoned school. This had been a small school, six classrooms, the floor strewn with broken glass, unidentifiable garbage, the remains of binders and textbooks. They picked their way through rooms, searching, but there was only wreckage and disarray. Layers of graffiti, unreadable names, and puffy, dripping letters across blackboards, old messages. Jasmine, if you see this, go to my dad's lake house. Ben. And here's another one about a taxi. On their second day without the symphony, Kirsten and August came upon a line of cars queued along the shoulder of the road. It was late morning and the heat was rising, a hush falling over the landscape. They'd lost sight of the lake. The cars cast curved shadows. They'd been cleaned out. No bones in back seats or abandoned belongings, which suggested someone lived near here and traveled this route. An hour later, they reached a gas station, a low building alone by the road with a yellow seashell sign still standing, vehicles crowded and blocking one another at the pumps. One was the color of melted butter, black lettering on the side, a Chicago taxicab, Kirsten realized. Someone in the very final days had hailed one of the last taxis in the rioting city, negotiated a price, and fled north. Two neat bullet holes in the driver's side door. A dog barked, and they froze. 
their hands on their weapons. Remember the newscasters in Oryx and Crake? Here's how Mandel did it. By day five, Frank was working on his ghostwriting project instead of watching the news because he said the news was going to drive them both crazy. And by then, most of the newscasters weren't even newscasters, just people who worked for the network and were seemingly unused to being on the other side of the camera. Cameramen were administrators speaking haltingly into the lens, and then countries began to go dark, city by city, No news out of Moscow, then no news out of Beijing, then Sydney, London, Paris, etc. Social media bristling with hysterical rumors, and the local news becoming more and more local, stations dropping away one by one until finally the last channel on air showed only a single shot in a newsroom, station employees taking turns standing before the camera and disseminating whatever information they had. And then one night, Jeevan opened his eyes at 2 a.m., and the newsroom was empty. Everyone had left. He stared at the empty room on the screen for a long time. Here's another scene of Jeevan thinking, which I found very touching. On silent afternoons in his brother's apartment, Jeevan thought himself thinking about how human the city is, how human everything is. We bemoaned the impersonality of the modern world, but that was a lie, it seemed to him. It had never been impersonal at all. There had always been a massive, delicate infrastructure of people, all of them working unnoticed around us. And when people stopped going to work, the entire operation grinds to a halt. No one delivers fuel to the gas stations or the airports. Cars are stranded. Airplanes cannot fly. Trucks remain at their points of origin. Food never reaches the cities. Grocery stores close. Businesses are locked and then looted. No one comes to work at the power plants or the substations. No one removes fallen trees from electrical lines. Jeevan was standing by the window when the lights went out. Mandel is also funny, which to me, combined with the pathos, really in my opinion, works. So here's a funny bit for you. August believed in the theory of multiple universes. He claimed this was straight-up physics, as he put it, or if not exactly mainstream physics, then maybe the outer edge of quantum mechanics, or anyway, definitely not just some crackpot theory he'd made up. I'm afraid I have no idea, the tuba had said when Kirsten had asked him for confirmation a few years back. No one had any idea, it turned out. None of the older symphony members knew much about science, which was frankly maddening, given how much time these people had had to look things up on the internet before the world ended. Gill had offered an uncertain reminiscence about an article he'd read once, something about how subatomic particles are constantly vanishing and reappearing, which meant, he supposed, that there's someplace else to be, which he imagined might suggest that a person could theoretically be simultaneous present and not present, perhaps living out a shadow life in a parallel universe or two. But look, he'd said, I was never a science guy. And the book also has these moments of realism that, again, work for me. Two weeks later, just before the old world ended, Miranda stood on a beach on the coast of Malaysia looking out at the sea. 
she'd been delivered back to her hotel after a day of meetings where she'd spent time finishing a report and eating a room service dinner. She'd planned on going to bed early, but through the window of her room, she could see the lights of the container ship fleet on the horizon, and she walked down to the water for a closer look. The three nearest airports had closed in the previous 90 minutes, but Miranda didn't know this yet. She'd been aware of the Georgia flu, of course, but was under the impression that it was still a somewhat shadowy health crisis unfolding in Georgia and Russia. The hotel staff had been instructed to avoid alarming the guests, so no one mentioned the pandemic as she crossed the lobby, although she did notice in passing that the front desk seemed understaffed. In any event, it was a pleasure to escape the coffin chill of the hotel air conditioning, to walk down the well-lit path to the beach and take off her shoes to stand barefoot in the sand. Later that evening, she would find herself troubled and at moments even a little amused by the memory of how casually everyone had once thrown around the word collapse before anyone understood what the word truly meant. But in any event, there had been an economic collapse, or so everyone called it at the time, and now the largest shipping fleet ever assembled lay 50 miles east of Singapore Harbor. Twelve of the boats belonged to Neptune Logistics, including two new Panamax-class vessels that had yet to carry a single cargo container, decks still gleaming from the South Korean shipyards, ships ordered in a moment when it seemed the demand would only ever grow, built over the following three years, while the economy imploded, unneeded now that no one was spending any money. My favorite scenes, however, are in an airport in Michigan that a bunch of flights get rerouted to, and the scenes there are just so familiar and also so utterly bizarre. The people stranded there eventually raid the coffee shop, but people are uncomfortable with that, with just stealing. And so finally one guy says, I'll just cover it. And he puts his Amex card down next to the cash register, and it just stays there. And there's another scene involving a new newscaster it's not looking promising for a quick end to the emergency, a newscaster said, understating the situation to a degree previously unmatched in the history of understatement. And then he blinked at the camera, and something in him seemed to stutter, a breaking down of some mechanism that had previously held his professional and personal lives apart. And he addressed the camera with a new urgency, breaking down and speaking directly to his wife. And I'll have to stop there or I'll break down too. It turns out that there are pilots in the airport and uh, one of them thinks about leaving. There were three pilots among the stranded. On the 15th day in the airport, one of them announced that he decided to take a plane to Los Angeles. The snow had melted, so he thought he could maybe make do without de-icing machines. People reminded him that Los Angeles had looked pretty bad on the news. Yeah, but everywhere looked bad on the news, the pilot said. His family was in L.A. He wasn't willing to accept the possibility of not seeing them again. Anyone wants to come with me, he said. It's a free flight to Los Angeles. 
This alone seemed like proof that the world was ending because this was the era when people were being charged extra for checked bags, for boarding early enough to cram baggage into overhead bins before the bins filled up, for the privilege of sitting in exit rows with their life-or-death stakes and their two extra inches of legroom. The passengers exchanged glances. The planes fueled up, the pilot said. I was flying Boston to San Diego when we got diverted, and it's not like it'll be a full flight. It occurred to Clark that if the entire population of the airport went out with him, there would still be empty seats on the plane. I'm going to give you all a day to think about it, the pilot said, but I'm flying out tomorrow before the temperature drops again. There were, of course, no guarantees. There had been no news from the outside world since the televisions went dark, and there were reeling moments when it seemed possible, not likely, but possible, that the 79 of them left there in the airport might be the last people alive on Earth. For all anyone knew, LAX was a heap of smoking rubble. Agonized calculations were performed. Almost everyone who lived west of the Rockies approached the pilot, Most of the people who lived in Asia opted to take the flight, which would still leave an ocean between themselves and their loved ones, but would at least bring them 2,000 miles closer to home. What an incredible choice, right? What would you do? Back to Singrid Nunes from New York Times. So here's some criticism. She writes, When the book falters, I think it is in its imagination of disaster. Having accepted the science that says a flu pandemic is highly probable in our future, Mandel chooses a worst possible situation, a plague that results in the immediate and total collapse of civilization. Now remember, she's writing this back in 2014. But the survivors do not think, act, or speak like people struck by such a cataclysm. For the most part, they do not behave very differently from people living in ordinary civilized times. Hunger, thirst, and exhaustion are alluded to, but there is no penetrating sense of the day-to-day struggle of vulnerable human beings lacking the basic amenities of life. I have to say I really disagree here because... We don't know how people will behave in the face of such an event. But I think that Mandel may be right when she explains how people's emotions continue to plague them with really stupid and everyday type stuff. And so here is her writing about the traveling symphony. Say what you think. The problem with the traveling symphony was the same problem suffered by every group of people everywhere since before the collapse, undoubtedly since well before the beginning of recorded history. Start, for example, with the third cello. He had been waging a war of attrition with Dieter for some months following a careless remark Dieter had made about the perils of practicing an instrument in dangerous territory, the way the notes can carry for a mile on a clear day. Dieter hadn't noticed. Dieter did, however, harbor considerable resentment toward the second horn because of something she'd once said about his acting. This resentment didn't go unnoticed. The second horn thought he was being petty, but when the second horn was thinking of people she didn't like very much, she ranked him well below the seventh guitar. 
There weren't actually seven guitars in the symphony, but the guitarists had a tradition of not changing their numbers when another guitarist died or left, so that currently the symphony roster included guitars four, seven, and eight. With the location of the sixth presently in question because they were done rehearsing a Midnight Summer's Dream in the Walmart parking lot, They were hanging the Midnight Summer's Dream backdrop between the caravans. They'd been in St. Deborah by the water for hours now, and why hadn't he come to them? Anyway, the seventh guitar, whose eyesight was so bad that he couldn't do most of the routine tasks that had to be done, the repairs and hunting and such, which would have been fine if he'd found some other way to help out, but he hadn't. He was essentially dead weight as far as the second horn was concerned. The seventh guitar was a nervous person because he was nearly blind. He'd been able to see reasonably well in an extremely thick pair of glasses, but he'd lost these six years ago, and since then, he'd lived in a confusing landscape distilled to pure color according to season. Summer mostly green, winter mostly gray and white, in which blurred figures swam into view and then receded before he could figure out who they were. He couldn't tell if his headaches were caused by straining to see or by his anxiety at never being able to see what was coming, but he did know the situation wasn't helped by the first flute, who had a habit of sighing loudly whenever the seventh guitar had to stop rehearsal to ask for clarification on the score that he couldn't see. But the first flute was less irritated by the seventh guitar than she was by the second violin, August, who was forever missing rehearsals, always off somewhere breaking into another house with Kirsten, and until recently, Charlie, like he thought the symphony was a scavenging outfit who played music on the side. If he wanted to join a scavenging outfit, she'd said to the fourth guitar, why didn't he just join a scavenging outfit? You know what the violins are like, the fourth guitar had said. August was annoyed by the third violin, who liked to make insinuating remarks about August and Kirsten, even though they'd only ever been close friends and had in fact made a secret pact to this effect. Friends forever and nothing else, sworn while drinking with locals one night behind the ruins of a bus depot in some town on the south end of Lake Huron, and the third violin resented the first violin following a long-ago argument about who had used the last of a batch of rosin, while the first violin was chilly to Saeed because Saeed had rejected her overtures in favor of Kirsten, who expended considerable energy in trying to ignore the viola's habit of dropping random French words into sentences as though anyone else in the entire goddamn symphony spoke French, while the viola harbored secret resentments against someone else, and so on, and so forth, etc., and this collection of petty jealousies, neuroses, undiagnosed PTSD cases, and simmering resentments lived together, traveled together, rehearsed together, performed together 365 days of the year, permanent company, permanent tour. But what made it bearable were the friendships, of course, the camaraderie, and the music, and the Shakespeare the moments of transcendent beauty and joy when it didn't matter who'd used the last of the rosin on their bow or who anyone had slept with, although someone, probably Saeed, had written Sartre. Hell is other people in pen inside one of the caravans, and someone else had scratched out other people and substituted flutes. 
You know, there's something really so peculiar about the current pandemic that we're going through and how much of it feels to me like same SHIT, different day. Like how much of the normalcy continues to the point of ridiculous. Like there's so much arguing about masks as though you're discussing beer making or cold-pressed coffee. I just am so struck by how banal people are in the midst of a catastrophe and how social media just marches on, you know, with sending images of cracked hearts sent to people whose relatives have died. And so to me, I just feel as though Mandel got that part right. The critic from the New York Times also wrote, my eyes never filled with tears. And Mine did on several occasions, and how she could have read about the little leaguer dead in his bed with his parents dead in their bed without crying, I don't know. And I'd read you a bit here, but I probably couldn't make it through. But, you know, I have to say, the book is not a tearjerker. The writing is spare and matter-of-fact. Okay, some other criticisms from other readers. Um, here are some from Amazon. Some people didn't like how the writing hops around, like the plot goes back and forth in time and also from person to person. And, you know, there are quite a cast of characters. I guess I would throw in my little criticism that I felt as though some of these characters had names that were a little bit too similar to each other, and so sometimes it was a little bit confusing about who was who. That happens, I think, a lot to writers. They just don't realize that we are reading, you know, very fast. And so the difference between Tyrone and Tyler are very profound to her, but it's easy for us to get confused. All right, so back to the Amazon critics. One of them wrote, This is the most disjointed piece of junk I have ever read. This author's constant need to jump back to the early days of Arthur's life is tiresome and of very little value to the whole story, unless you just want to know about the life of this person who died in the first chapter. And I do feel their pain about hopping around. But I do feel like, unlike Oryx and Craig, I didn't feel as though it was just a device to manufacture suspense for the plot. I did feel as though it worked a little better for this kind of unfolding of this world and of the people in the world. Other people felt as though there was no point to this story. This book makes you feel like you'll eventually get to somewhere important. But you never do. The story, like so many well-reviewed books these days, has no point. There's no heart or moral. It drifts, as though the author themselves lost interest while writing it. You wait and wait to find out why the various characters' lives are connected. You wait for that point in stories like these where the individual stories merge into a satisfying aha moment, where you finally put the pieces together and understand where the story had been taking you. You never reach that point here. This is a very dissatisfying story. I would have to say that whatever point there is, it's pretty nuanced, right? This isn't a Dean Kuntz book. And so if you're going to hope to read it in that way, I think you probably will be disappointed. I actually read the book very fast. So in that sense, it was a bit of a page turner for me. But it's not 
going to be, you know, page turner, page turner, suspense build, climax. It's not that kind of book. It's pretty subtle. But I do feel as though ultimately, I'd say it's even wildly hopeful. And if you want an uplifting read, I, I think this could be it, at least in this moment. I think the real genius is in the description of what things might be like. You know, that's what really captured me. And also that return to nostalgia for, for our world. And so I'll end with this. They walked mostly in silence, stunned by grief, Saeed limping, listening for the dog. The signs for the airport led them away from the lake, out of downtown, up into residential streets of wood frame houses. A few of the roofs had collapsed up here, most under the weight of fallen trees. In the morning light, there was beauty in the decrepitude, sunlight catching the flowers that had sprung up through the gravel of long overgrown driveways. Mossy front porches turned brilliant green, a white blossoming bush alive with butterflies. This dazzling world, an ache in Kirsten's throat. The houses thinned out, longer spaces between the overgrown driveways. And now the right lane of the road was clogged with cars, rusted exoskeletons on flat tires. When she glanced in the windows, she saw only trash from the old world, crumpled chip bags, the remains of pizza boxes, electronic objects with buttons and screens. Thanks for listening, everybody. Well, the pandemic isn't really over, but it seems as though we've moved into a different phase where our lives have a bit more normalcy. As a result, we're adjusting the format of the show back to fewer, more lengthy episodes airing on Tuesday and Friday and sometimes on Sunday, since those Sunday literary episodes have been very popular. Speaking of which, our downloads have exploded during the pandemic, so thank you for your patronage. If you like what we do, you can support the show through our Patreon page. Another way to support us, which doesn't cost anything, is to follow us or like us on Podomatic.com, and that will help us increase our visibility. Also, we'd love to hear from you. Drop us a comment about who you are, what you like, or if you have a comment about the show. And finally, I also run a professional training company for people who want to advance in their careers with courses on communication skills, executive presence, and accent reduction. You can find out more at discreteguide.com, D-I-S-C-R-E-E-T-G-U-I-D-E. Please take care and let's talk again soon.